In a little while, you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? They said, what is this he is saying? In a little while, we don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Annalee. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 16. Before we look specifically at that text, uh, I want to share with you an idea, a, a few illustrations to help get our minds on the same page. Uh, but it governs this basic concept that we all know and probably agree on, which is this, that hard things, that things that are worth it are difficult, and therefore you and I should be committed to endure difficult times and circumstances. Because why? Because the expenditure of that effort, if that something on the other side is worth it, it's worth us sacrificing for. And we know this to be true. We've heard the idea, but we actually know in our movies and in our, uh, the sports that we watch, we love to celebrate people that do very, very, very hard things and overcome. That's why... Uh, that famous movie that came out a long time ago that was a, a series of three movies did not entail a wizard showing up at a hobbit's house and saying, hey, Frodo, I got a ring. Would you mind delivering it across the street? No, you don't need three movies to do that. No, I'll just take it across the street. I'll be back for tea or whatever the hobbits drink, right? No, this is a... This is a journey. This is a, a, somebody, a, a hobbit, whatever that is, literally saying at times, I can't do this. 
There are times I wish that this did not fall upon me. I mean, literally, there's like this, they're all dirty a lot of the time. You notice how dirty they are? And there's like fighting and swords. And, and, and this is what happens when things actually matter. And that's why we loved it. We loved how hard it was and how difficult it was and how many of them it took. And, and, and we know chances are it's going to work, but we had no idea it was going to take that many twists and turns. Why? It's just because there's, there's something in the human experience that finds pleasure and joy in accomplishing things, and not things that are easy, but things that are rather hard. Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> speaking of difficult things, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, I heard him give a, a, a speech one time, and I thought this was so fascinating. He was describing that uh, somebody had asked him in this interview, what classes should a person take if they want to be a comedian? And he said the ones that probably will surprise you and I. He said two things. First one, not so much of a surprise. Psychology is a good one. So you can just kind of get a sense of kind of how people think. So that would be a good one. And, and the other one is probably geometry. Like, what? Geometry? And he said, yeah. He said, so much of joke telling is literally trying to think in kind of, in kind of abstract terms what you're trying to accomplish. Like a, a good joke is a joke that when you say it, it's like running, and it's like running to, and then jumping over like some kind of a distance, and then landing on the other side. And he said, if the joke isn't that hard, if it's not that difficult, if it's like an easy step, then the laugh is usually like, ha, ha, ha. If it's too complicated, if it's too difficult, think Norm MacDonald, then what it is is it's a joke, and it's so far that in the end you just fall in the chasm, and you go, I didn't get it. Jerry said, the secret, and he's good at what he does, at the secret, he said, is trying to create enough distance that there is a thrill, but that it's not too far. I've thought a lot about that. Not in terms of joke telling, but in terms of life. In life, life can be like that. There's the really simple things that we do that aren't very big. I mean, they don't have a movie. There's not a movie back in the 70s about a boxer um, that, you know, just drank tea all the time and never really trained. No. Do you guys remember Rocky? Yeah. The, the favorite part in the movie, especially the first two, they were so boring. But the best part of the movie is when he's what? Training. Like, we know the sound, we know the music, we know the score. Um, I literally, when I watched the third one, I thought, you know what, remember that? I think it was Mr. T, he had these things up in the ceiling, and he was, like, pulling himself up. Rocky liked to pull himself up. And so I remember buying, like, these, like, these hand grips, and I remember nailing them to the brackets, uh, to, the, to the ceiling in the basement, and then never using them. But I remember looking at them, <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I know what music I'm going to be playing when I do that. <laughs> I just hang okay like we 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 know we can be so excited about that one and it's because that's what that's what that's what we celebrate we celebrate the difficult things we look up to that I'm not here to just talk about movies but one other movie that I just absolutely loved that blew my mind was the movie Defiance I'm not going to ruin it for you if you've not seen it I really won't ruin it Um, but it is about a group of people and it was historical It's about a group of people at the beginning of World War II um, that were on the run somewhere in Eastern Europe, and the Nazis are chasing them. And I just remember the kind of the lead 
people in the play, they're in the movie, they're, they're, they're running from the Nazis and they're, they're trying to hide and they're hiding in the woods. And there's just a few of them. It's just a family. And then a few other families start coming and, and the movie goes on. It seemed like it, it was on, it was going on for about two hours. Exciting movie, but it seemed long. And I remember how it began. You know, it began literally September 1st, 1939. By the way, that's when the war started, just in case you don't know. So it starts kind of at the beginning of the war. And then the movie seemed like it went on for like two and a half to three hours. And I just remember, I'm watching it with Anna, I just remember thinking, I sure hope it's 1944, you know? I sure hope it's 1945. And I'll never forget, like way into the movie, it literally said something like January 1940. And I went, oh, they don't have a chance. They're never gonna make it. Not if it's January and 40. Like they're gonna get caught. And so I do what every responsible person does whenever they're watching a movie with their wife. That's historical. You Google it, Right? And you sit there, because I can't watch a movie not knowing what's going to happen, especially if it's real. Like, I don't know if these people are going to die or not. They could die. And so I literally, I'm sitting there, oh, Andrew, you'll never guess what happens. Oh, Andrew, you'll never guess what happens. By the way, she hates it when I do that. But it's almost the only way in which I can enjoy a movie, which means I watch a lot alone. Just, uh, I watch a lot alone. (laughs) Truly, it's an amazing story. I won't say how it ends, but the entire process is up and down But you don't just make a movie if it's like easy. You want the movie. Like that's like, that would be a great movie. Why? Because they overcome because of the struggles and the difficulties. We can celebrate this. We can can believe that we could be more when we watch it, right? We could, I don't know if we could do that, but wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Wouldn't it be great if we could lift ourselves up? Would that not be awesome? Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. And he's helping them see. He's, he's describing what is going to happen because they are about to endure uh, difficulties and hardships that they, they could not fathom. I wonder sometimes if these stories aren't so particular to John's gospel as he spends so much time on the night that Jesus was betrayed. I wonder if it's not a sense... Um, that they really had to come to terms with the fact that everything that they thought and everything that they knew was radically going to change. I'm, I'm wondering if the, the triumphal entry was just such a huge moment in the disciples that they were thinking, okay, now, now we're moving. Now this is working again. Like we had a little bit of a glitch. I mean, when we started, remember when we started, guys? Remember when we all started following Jesus and the crowds were coming? Wasn't that awesome? Remember we were up in Galilee and Jesus fed the 5,000 and there were 15,000 there and we just thought, okay, this is gonna be awesome. But then Jesus preached that terrible sermon and nobody stuck around. Even we wanted to leave. And it got kind of depressing, and we had some lean years. But no, 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 things are turning around. Yeah, we've had our difficulties, but Jesus is really getting it, and we're finally being, being recognized for who he is. They were singing Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they, they were recognizing him as king. Like, this is working, right? And they have no idea that Jesus is not even going to survive the next few days. Well, he will, but not in the way that they're expecting it. Jesus is going to be fine, but it's going to be such a train wreck for them. It's going to be such a mess for them that Jesus does what he does so well is he lets them know this is what's going on. Like, I don't want there to be any surprise. Jesus gives them a preview of what is going to happen, but but here's what's interesting. Jesus speaks like his heavenly father does, and this is how his heavenly father speaks. Abram I want you to leave the land that you're in and I want you to go to 
that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great name, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will, in the end, bless all the people in the world through you. That is so vague. The fulfillment of that will take 2,000 years. Abraham will be dead for the vast, vast majority of that time. And he never once said, and I want you to know, it's going to involve you actually sleeping with your maidservant and then having a child and then your wife's going to have some problems with her and them and they're going to be sent away and, and then and your grandkid is a mess and his children are even worse and they're going to sell one into slavery and you're going to go to Egypt and then after a while they're going to forget who you are and you'll grow like crazy like I promised but in the end then you'll be slaves in this other nation. He never says that. Why? It's not that, because he doesn't owe it to us. Well, he doesn't. But I think God is kind to us. And he's gracious to us by giving us life a day at a time. My, my title for this message is Life Lived Backwards Beforehand. Life Lived Backwards Beforehand. It means that we start at the end. And we literally, knowing how the end is going to be, we know how to live now because he speaks about it beforehand. Anyone who lives by faith lives life backwards before. That's what faith is. Faith looks at the end and realizes, I don't really need to know the nuts and bolts between here and there because I know how it's going to end. See, Andrea, this is why Google is so helpful for movies. No, I'm serious. Don't, no, don't do that. I'm serious. This is why... See, pray for her. Um, it's a biblical reason why I want to know the end so that I can endure, right? How many of you, by the way, do this, like cheat and find out beforehand? Thank you, I'm not alone. Um, literally, it's, do you see how helpful it can be? Spiritually speaking, not kidding. Do you see how helpful it can be? Like to know where we end? Because God doesn't seem to tell us the specifics of the in-between. And when he does, it, it's hard. This is what the Bible actually teaches, that the world is seductive. And it is going to wear you down day by day. It is going to lure you in. It is going to tempt you. And by the way, you will be tempted. And not only will you be tempted, but you will give in to that temptation. Just like Adam and Eve, just like everyone since then, the world is a seductive place. And not only that, it is an oppressive place. When the world is not nagging at you and pulling at you on a daily basis, sometimes it will just completely overwhelm you intentionally. It will do everything it can to break you. And before you just go, I'm human, I couldn't help it, I can't do this, I, I want you to know that you can't. <laughs> this is the Bible. That you can't. And I want you to stay engaged during the middle of all of this. As the world is seducing you and as the world is oppressing you and making it really, really difficult, I want you to know that like, following me is not like a part-time thing. Um, you're not fitting me into your calendar. You're not fitting me into your schedule. That in the end, you are to remain in me. This is John 6. You're to remain in me. You're stay, to stay close to me. And so if it was as simple as hey, when it's easy, I can be on, and when I don't want to do it, then I can be off, and I can kind of pick and choose my moments or my circumstances that in the end, like, I'm here, but I'm kind of more like a part-time Christian. 
So that way, like, it's too seductive. I just give in. You know, weekends, right? Game day. So I got that figured out. But in the end, like, I, I really am. I'm in. I mean, I'll be at church on Sunday. But I just, I, I just, I need to, I need to have God like at a at a part, and that's no, and it's not, it's not how it works. It's not faith. Faith isn't you selectively choosing when to be and then when not to be. Faith is expected. I mean, it's amazing to me, and this is so sad about Western society, and particularly maybe American society, is that we can be Christians on our own terms. We get to self-identify as. We get to choose in terms of what it looks like. That's not how Jesus speaks. The fact that we have to say that to be a follower of Jesus means following Jesus, and people are going, really? is astounding. Like following Jesus means following him? Yep. That's not a new invention. It's a couple hundred years old in, the, in, in our, in our, in our uh, modern context. And I would say it's from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Really? I think we're going to be made in the image of God <laughs> the way we want to. You want some? It's expected. And then not only that, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is demanding it's demanding. It's not only every day, but it's every day, like, at the max. Like, Jesus makes some really, really, really bold statements that if we were to take them seriously, I really think it would help us. It really would. It would help us understand um, just what the Christian life looks like. Uh, I have been, at times, deeply concerned when I hear comments, they're not new comments, they're as old as the church has existed, about people deconstructing their faith. I just want them to make sure that as they're deconstructing their faith, and I understand it, I've gone through faith struggles, and I've tried to figure out what I believed, and what my parents told me, and what my church has taught me, and what the church generally believes, and what the church has taught. I've gone through all those questions. I've asked very difficult questions, some I still don't even have the answer for. I just want to make sure that what I'm deconstructing is actually like the Christian faith and not what others have been lying to me about. Right now I'm in a conversation with someone who doesn't know if they believe anymore and I can appreciate the honesty of that struggle. I just, my question was, what is it that you don't believe anymore? And at the root of a lot of what they don't believe is just, I just don't believe my life's going to get any better. I don't believe your life is going to get any better. Not magically. Like, I don't know if my life is going to get any better. I don't know if 2022 is as good as it gets for us, girl. I don't know of that. I don't. I don't know. That's not what we believe, though. What we believe is Jesus is better. What we believe is being faithful is worth it. I don't know if there'll be a lot of tears coming up. I just know that the tears are worth crying, and I know the pain is worth enduring because I know the end of the story, and I'm trying to live life backwards beforehand. And that's what Jesus is doing to his disciples. That's why he says, and listen, I mean, this is what, this is honestly why when people are genuinely deconstructing their faith, that we're helping them understand, like, but this is what Jesus said. Like, let's deconstruct that. Like, let's have honest conversations about what Jesus has promised and what God has said. Let's let's have real conversations about that. Because Jesus said, like, if you don't love me more than your job, then you're not worthy of me. Like, you're just not worthy of me. That's not how we talk, but that's how Jesus speaks. Like, if you don't love me more than your kids, 
then you're just not worthy of me. That if you don't love me more than your spouse, more than whatever it is that you love, if you don't love me more than that, he says, you are not worthy of me. And then he says, if you don't love me more than life itself, like more than life, you are not worthy of me. That's demanding. But that's what happens when you're about to watch your Savior be betrayed. You're going to be brought to the breaking point. You're going to have to ask questions about, am I willing to give up this or sacrifice that? How far am I willing to go to follow Jesus? Because everything the disciples are about to see is going to be completely dismantled in front of them. And then not just magically put back together. They're going to have not a hard night of the soul. They're going to have an unbelievable weekend. And Jesus says, before you go through that, I just want you to know some things. And the biggest picture is this. God knows every step of the journey. God knows every step of your journey, Abram. God knows every step of your journey, Joseph. God knows every step of your journey, Moses. God knows every step of your journey, Job. God, and and we, we know this about Bible people, and we watch them go through it and wonder why they succeed and why they fail. But do you know that about you? That God knows beforehand every step of your journey, and I know he doesn't say exactly how it's going to go. I would consider, I would ask you to consider that God's silence at most of our lives, and I'm not saying he's silent, I'm saying that he does not answer the questions that I've asked all the time as grace. There are things I, I, there are things I believe that I, I don't think we would have done had we known how difficult they would be, even though they worked out good. I don't, I don't know if I could have done it, knowing. I guarantee you there are relationships that you and I have been in that if we had known, we wouldn't have done it. It wasn't worth it. Okay, well, okay, now I think it's worth it because I really see how it all worked, but boy, oh boy, I... There were, so, there were days, weeks, months, years where I would never have thought it worth it. Had I had known, isn't God kind? He does that knowing every step of the journey. Still calling us, still inviting us, and even letting us know, I love it, the grace of God. I'm not going to tell you exactly what tomorrow is going to bring, but I'm going to tell you where tomorrow is going. And it's worth it. And do you know why it is worth it? Because he is worth it. This is what we actually see in our text this morning, looking at verses 20 through 22. Jesus says, truly. In the, in the Greek, it's two words back to back. Amen, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, some translations are truly, truly. Older translations, verily, verily. But I haven't used verily in days. So we'll go with Truly. Truly, Jesus is saying, um, uh, you, can, you can rely on this. You can count on this. More than what you are experiencing right now. More than what you really thought that you think you believe to be no to be true. I'm going to give you something deeper than that. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, which is hard enough. 
and the world will rejoice. And the world will rejoice. It's hard to weep and mourn. It's very difficult to go through those things, but to do so while those around you are um, excited about what they have done or have what they caused, they think it's a victory. You know what it's like. You, you, uh, how many of you have gone to a football game where the opposing team won? Like, not, not your team. And you're still wearing your colors as you're walking out. Yeah, I'm a Miami Hurricane fan. I drove to Manhattan, Kansas and watched KSU drum us. 55 to nothing, maybe negative five, and there's me and my kids with our Miami gear walking out of the stadium, whatever they have, like a growl or a lion or whatever it is, right? They were kind to us. I just remember feeling like a loser the entire way out. Imagine, imagine that with something that actually mattered. You will weep and you will mourn. This is something that the disciples have put all of their energy into and to watch their savior, their leader, their one that they claim to be the son of God and the Messiah literally dismantled physically in front of them, mocking and cheering. Talk about feeling like you got it completely wrong. Jesus says to them, you will weep and you will mourn and the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. So I, I, I used the Frodo example or Rocky or whatever, right? And you, you can think of even like personal examples. This is the one I want to use, but Jesus used it first. Probably one of the greatest examples, right? About going through pain when it's worth it. Jesus used it already. Verse 21, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a, I think he's speaking more like a, generally speaking for those of you that are going, I remember some of the pain. But anyway, he says she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. That's the example that Jesus gives to these disciples. Like This is what it's like to be a Christian. Are you ready? It's like giving birth. Like it's that... It's that hard and it's that exacting and it's that demanding and it's that joyful. Like it's that joyful. I, I, I don't think it's by, that's, that's why like Mordor and uh, Philadelphia uh, don't even, even, even all the atrocities and the victories that happened after World War II, they, they really don't compare in a sense because what Jesus is describing here is, is new life of living sacrificially for new life, of giving of his life for new life. And Jesus says that's what it is like, and God is aware of every step of the journey. And so he says in verse 22, so you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. Like it will end. You might want to go, wait a second, aren't they going to have hard days? Yeah, but they're going to have something on the other side. If you wonder why um, Jesus and his disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is so different than Acts, uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all the way to Revelation, it's like something radically happened <laughs> at the end of those gospels that fundamentally changed everything. How do you go from cowards to courageous? How do you go from scattering 
to standing firm. What is it? And Jesus is saying beforehand, I want you to know, and and by the way, this is going to prepare you. I want you to know, like, this is what it's going to be, and this is where we're going, and this is what is going to happen. Are you aware of this? And the disciples are looking at him, and they're going, oh, now we understand. No, you don't. Jesus even points that out. You still don't get it. And he's not mad at them. It's not like, what is wrong with you? You don't get it. He's saying to them, yeah, I know you can't get it. It's a really interesting verse in verse 17, where Jesus uses two different words. In a little while you will not see me, and in a little while you will see me. How many of you, when you hear that, in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you'll see me again, how many of you, when you were hearing that, thought, oh, that's the resurrection? In a little while you won't see me anymore, because I'll be dead. And then in a little while, like literally on Sunday, I'm going to come back, right? I don't think so. It's two different words for see. I don't think he's saying in a little while, you'll, this is why I think they were so confused. And they, have you ever wondered, like, what is so metaphorical here? What is so figures of speech? Jesus is using some very interesting language. In a little while, you're not going to see me, but then you're going to see me. I think he's telling them, and they're beginning to understand You're going to see me, not with your eyes. I mean, you'll see me with your eyes, but you're going to see me in a fundamentally different way. You're going to have a completely different view of who I am. Like after the resurrection, it's a game changer. It's going to fundamentally reshape everything. You're going to see me in a completely different light. What we should repent of, at least what I should repent of, is actually believing that what the disciples did after the resurrection of Jesus was they finally got it. Oh, now I understand. Now there's so much more that happens. Jesus actually says, after this is done, you're going to really get it, and that get it kind of joy, it cannot be taken from you because you will see me in a fundamentally different way. You will see essentially the whole story of who I am. Because what the disciples could not figure out is how God would ever use a suffering Messiah to save the world. How many for you, that is your greatest joy? (laughs) Do you see the confusion? Do you see the enlightenment? The fact that God would use his son to save the world is something you and I go, yeah, John 3, 16. The disciples had no idea. So did God give them this information to spare them the difficulty of failure? Did God give them, knowing things that are going to happen and knowing them beforehand and then living backwards, will that protect us from stumbling and falling? And the answer is no. Jesus makes it very clear at the end of the story. What does he say? All of you will scatter. All of you will abandon me. I'm I'm saying this to you, and I think what Jesus does so beautifully in the night that he was betrayed is he gives them information. He gives them promises. He reminds them who they are. He reminds them who he is. He reminds them of God's love. He reminds them to remain. 
And some of us think, yes, like this is what, this is what it's about. It's that we learn these things and then we commit to these things and then we, we run up the steps to the beautiful music and then we kind of, yeah, right? And then we're, we win, we overcome, right? Like we, we know it, I've got it figured out and I'm gonna work harder at it. And that's not what John 16 is about. John 16 is not about us working harder and figuring it out. It actually is about this. Underlining the fact that Jesus is the one that is holding it all together. Jesus is the one holding everything together, not us. The story actually continues with the disciples not fully understanding. And Jesus saying, and not only do you not understand, it's going to get worse. And every time you think you got it figured out, I promise you, the rabbit hole will get deeper. But one day the, the light will shine. The, the, this will all make sense. But it's not now. And I'm letting you know this now, not to keep you from the struggle. Faith was never intended by God so that you and I could avoid the problems and the difficulties of this world that's living in rebellion against him. But a way of seeing God through it, recognizing him through it, that's what faith is. It, faith is realizing that in the midst of sorrow, while others are rejoicing, I'm not crazy. In the midst of not having things figured out, knowing he does. I'm reminded of a, a sermon in which it just described all these difficult struggles of people in life. And at the end of the sermon, it's one of my favorite messages, um, he describes that all of these people still had the ability to sing praise to God. We'll do that here in a moment. They would sing praise to God, praise to God, praise to God, praise to God. And then he asked the question, how do they do it? When life is so hard, how do they still sing? And then he said something I will never forget and something that I try to remember when I'm going through a hard time. The reason why they can sing songs when it is so hard, when there is so much sorrow and so much mourning, is they know they are not singing about life, but they are singing about God. That's how we sing. That's why we don't have songs. Isn't life awesome? I love life. It's so great. Haven't had a bad day in four weeks. No, we sing about how great God is. That's what we sing about. I can sing that no matter how I'm going, whatever what I'm going through, even if I'm having a hard time feeling what I'm saying. I can still sing it, wanting it to be true, believing it can be true through eyes of faith, believing Jesus in the midst of this. He has this. Do you really believe that? Have you ever asked that question? Somebody looks at you and they challenge your faith. Do you really believe that? I now like to say, I do by faith. <laughs> like I really do. Like by faith, I believe it. That's a good way of knowing, especially if you're a Christian. I would argue it's the best way of knowing. And that is why the Bible turns us back to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through four. Therefore, when you're going through difficulties and hardships, when you're in the midst of sorrow while everybody else is rejoicing, since you and I have such a large cloud of witnesses, which means we're not the only ones going through this throughout all time, God has um, maintained for himself. He has remained with them. He has brought them through. There are others who have learned how to live life backwards beforehand. We're not the first. Let us lay every hindrance aside and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
knowing that we can do it, remembering that our mom promised that we could, put every, we could do everything we put our mind to, what do we do? And I promise you'll never fail and you'll never, what does it say? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He accomplished everything. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and give up. By the way, I don't think what he's implying there is that you won't slip up or you won't make mistakes or you won't have struggles or difficulties or that you won't have bad days or that you won't deny him three times or when the soldiers come that you won't run away. No, it appears to be that in this life of faith that you and I have, that is sometimes what we do. And then what? We remember Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the a pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That's what Peter's going to need because he's going to deny him. And then what does he remember? But Jesus didn't deny me. They're going to scatter. And what do they need to remember? Jesus didn't abandon us. Isn't it interesting? Can I tell you what you need to hear this morning, what I need to hear this morning, what we need to hear this morning is not that we will never make a mistake or that we will never struggle or that we will never, it's that Jesus won't. That'll keep you from becoming self-righteous. That'll keep you from deconstructing what other people said about faith instead of what the Bible truly teaches about faith. It, it will keep us directed, our, our gaze, our attention, our thoughts on Jesus. We will not grow weary, he says in verse four, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus, which means this, that we keep our eyes on Jesus not because um, he did it so you can do it. That's not the point of Jesus. This is why it's wrong to take a look at the life of Jesus and to come up with some tips to follow. By the way, I'm not saying that they're not helpful. I'm saying you can't do it. You can't. And if you're not okay with that, you're in the wrong place. We are here to celebrate not what we can do, but what Jesus Christ can do through us. And by the way, anything that you and I can do, because it's not like we can't get it right sometimes, that is even done by his power, is it not? Is that not the beauty of it? By his spirit? It's still never about us. Is that not a good thing, brother, sister? It's still not about us. Jesus has everything in control. But can I tell you something even better than that? Jesus is not the one holding everything together. Jesus is holding you together. Jesus is holding us together. I have skipped over the last verse of our text too often. I want to close with it. Jesus says to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of uh, all of the expectations and demands on your life because of me, I want you to know that in me you will have peace. Is that what you have? Is your life modeled by peace 
If, if I were to say, give me a description of Jim, man, if there's one thing that guy is, it's peaceful. It's a word that I very seldom hear describing Christians today. Why? I honestly think we love to talk about our brokenness more than we love to talk about Jesus' perfection. We love to talk about our struggles more than we like to talk about Jesus' victory. I, I really think there's a, we're not seeing him right. And by the way, to see him is to actually see the fullness of who he is. That is why we need to remember that he has told us these things so that we might have peace. But look at these last few sentences here. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. Why? Underline this. Jesus says, because I, I have conquered the world. That is what we celebrate. And because he won, you don't have to. And because he won, you can share in his victory. And that is why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, I would like for us, in terms of our reflection, to reflect on this. Jesus is not trying through his instructions. Hear me, this is so important. Jesus is not trying with his instructions to perfect his people. You can never be perfected by teaching. Teaching will inform and will guide and will direct us to something greater. What you and I need is not a really, really good lesson or a really, really good sermon. What you and I need, and we have actually, is a really, really good Savior. That's what we have. And so he says, on the night that he was betrayed, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to them, to each of them. Knowing they will scatter, knowing they will abandon, knowing they will deny. Jesus says to them, this is the way home. Remember this. Remember this after it's all said and done. That I am greater than your greatest success or your greatest failure. You need me. And I have conquered the world. How did Jesus conquer the world? Let us take the bread and eat. And likewise, he took the cup, gave it to them, saying, this is my blood given to you. Let us drink. And so you and I don't reflect on just what we have done this past week. And we don't come around the table thinking about ourselves. I mean, sure, bring yourself to the table, but don't forget to look at Jesus. And that is why we can sing um, aspirationally and hopefully about what we are about to sing about, the cross of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the one that's holding us all together, that, that cornerstone. And, and we can just confess, God, truly, I am looking to you because you are worth it. We are doing that, not because we haven't figured out, but we know that he already has. Amen? So let us stand and sing joyfully this morning for a Savior who is worthy.